welcome to Tiny Voice Talks. I'm so pleased that you're back with us. And this week, Tiny Voice is talking about being unbreakable. And I have a guest that has proved time and time and time again in his life that he is utterly unbreakable. So welcome, Oliver Wright. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. I'm so pleased you're here. And I'm so excited that I finally know your surname because I've known you as Oliver Twinkle so long because I came on Twitter and you are just Oliver Twinkle to me so for those that don't know who Oliver Wright is and still consider you as Oliver Twinkle can you tell them who is Oliver Wright? Um, Yes I can do I've I've been a teacher uh, a primary school teacher and I've been a head teacher and I now work for Twinkle as sector manager for senior leadership so I'm developing resources and relationships with leaders in schools um, I'm also a family man. I've got a wife and I've got two girls, uh, one twelve, one fourteen. 14, uh, live in Sheffield, absolutely love riding a bike. Um, and that's me, I think. Sounds perfect. Mm-hmm. So tell me about little Oliver. And did he always want to be a teacher? Was education something he was desperate to go into? No, no, it was one of those things that I sort of ran away from, I think, because I had not a particularly great experience of primary school and didn't really rate the teachers that that worked with me. Um, So I always sort of decided I was never going to be like them. And even when I was at school and people were saying, oh, you'd be fantastic as a primary school teacher, you'd love it. I still sort of fought against that and and went off and and tried to avoid doing that. Um, And it was only when I went went to university, did some sort of career stuff, and it came back ticking all the boxes as, you know, this is what you need to be, be doing. Um, and I went and did some voluntary work in a, in a local school and absolutely loved it. It was fantastic. So why did little Oliver not like school terribly much? What was it about those teachers that... I think because I grew up in a time before the national curriculum and mm-hmm. there, was, there, were, there was a lot of teachers who, at that certainly in the school I was in, who seemed to wander in in the morning and just sort of decide what they were going to do on the way to work. And they'd come in and it was very sort of um, creative writing and poetry and art and things like that, which were great. But there was there was not the other side of the coin with the sort of the maths and the science. Um, and there was not really the rigour to it. And it was a bit, bit free and easy. Um, and I just wanted a little bit more structure than that, really, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. I know from previous conversations we've had that you have a disability. Did that impact on your early childhood, do you think, within school? I think so, yes. Um, I'm deaf in one ear and it's one of those Mm. things that I don't make a big thing about. I don't really, it's not something I normally talk about. Um, But it means that in any social situations, if there's a lot of noise, I can't hear any anything really. I just hear background noise. Um, Mm. And as a child, I remember the first time I can remember sort of being different to other people was playing hide and seek. And, you know, you all sort of run off and hide and somebody counts and then shouts, come in ready or not. And if I shouted ready, everyone could find me straight away. And I just couldn't get my head around how somebody could do that because I couldn't hear direction and I couldn't hear distance. I just heard noise. And if there was more than one noise, I just heard lots of noise. Um, so it was one of those things that was picked up in in a school hearing test when I was about seven. Um, and as far as I know, I've always been deaf. And it, it just means that it's difficult when there's there's a lot of background noise and it's difficult to hear things like direction and distance, um, which 
as a child playing in a busy playground made things a bit difficult and it, it makes me possibly sometimes a bit quieter. Um, but then as an adult in, you know, working in a school setting, it's also difficult if there's a lot of noise. So it's meant my teaching style is, is relatively calm and quiet. And, you know, my classroom is always calm and quiet and pers- purposeful or has been. Um, so yeah, it does make a difference. It must do actually. And is that, has this been born in mind when you've worked at places as a teacher? I don't know. It's one of those things because it, it's it's so tied up in what you are as a person almost you know I can't Mm. separate out the hearing part from from the rest of me but it just it means that when I'm working with a class or when I'm working with individuals the where where I'll position myself and you know the way that I'll scan the room and the way that I manage myself is probably a little bit different to how it would be if I didn't have that issue um but it's something that I don't tend to to make a big thing of. You know, it's not something you put on your application form or you want anyone to make a difference for. Um, but Why? It, I think because I never wanted to be different. Um, I didn't want to be picked out as different. And I didn't want anyone to make any particular exception for me one way or the other. You, you know, you're never sure with, with people when you're, when you're applying for a job and you fill that form in. You're never sure whether people are going to either sort of expect you to not be very good or make some sort of allowance for you or you know you, I just wanted to be treated as, as the same as everybody else and be there on merit um, and then manage it myself almost if that makes sense. It does make sense and I think it happens probably all too often where people don't actually want to ignore acknowledge well let others know that they have a disability of sorts or an illness of sorts because they don't want that to factor into things but actually gosh I'm just imagining how hard it must be being deaf in one ear and working in a classroom especially I mean I, I know that you've worked in an open plan school yeah and that must have been near impossible that was amazing because I my first job was you know I had my own classroom I could shut the classroom door I could have it as quiet as I wanted it was my class and I could work with them and then the second job that I went to was in an open plan setting and no matter what I did with my class, I could have them all sat absolutely perfectly quietly, listening really intently and totally focused. And there would be another class in the other half of the classroom who would just be not quite as quiet and focused. Um, and it just made it really difficult. And it, it almost honed those skills, though, so that I I had to look really carefully and I had to, to use all the sort of the other senses that I had to, to manage my class um, and to use the presence that I had in that room. Um, to sort of have an effect on the other side as well Uh, but yeah it was it was really difficult. I'm sure it must have been. So tell me how your career progressed because you've arrived in the classroom. Where did you go and what did you do? Um, I started out in a relatively sort of affluent area of Sheffield and I had a class of year five six children and absolutely loved it really enjoyed it um, did I think three or four years there, and then uh, just wanted more responsibility. Uh, wanted to stretch myself a bit further because I've always in my career sort of not aspired to like have this master plan that was going to be stretching off into the distance. It was always you know get good at what I do and then take the next step if I wanted to. Um, so I took on a team leader role in another school. Um, did that for sort of three four years, and then took on an assistant heads role in another school. Um, and it was funny because the first two I worked in were junior schools and my second head, I remember vividly telling me 
there's no point going any further in your career because you've not worked with infants and nobody else will want you. Um, Sheffield, because there were very few separate schools, most of them were through schools. Um, That was a really big issue. So I I went off and got an assistant heads role in an infant school. Um, Almost just to sort of prove him wrong, but also to develop my skills and to develop myself. Um, And I went on from that into headship um, and really enjoyed it. Fantastic. I think it's so important to have that variety throughout your teaching career. You know, I I have taught reception to year six and I've I've loved every opportunity that I've been given. And I have year groups I prefer and I have year groups that I prefer less. But I think it's really important to know where children come from and where they are going to within the primary sector. I really do. And it also it gives you much more of an understanding, doesn't it? If you've worked with all those different year groups to, to not sort of feel like the year six is the absolute where everything is or reception is the be all and end all, but, but just have an understanding of, of where children are and what, the way that they learn is really important. Mm, absolutely. And I know that, um, well, let's talk about the accident. <laughs> yes. So... This is how I I know that you've been on Twitter for a bit and we sort of bumped into each other as such as you do on Twitter. Yes. But where you wrote a blog mm-hmm. and it absolutely hit me between the eyes yeah. because suddenly Oliver Twinkle had had was writing about an incredibly serious accident mm-hmm. which you thankfully survived from but yeah. it was it was horrific. Yeah. It was. Um, and it's one of those things, I don't feel it's all that special or different to anybody else. But it, it was absolutely horrific. Um, and it took a lot of recovery time. Um, mm. So yeah, I was I was racing my bike at the velodrome in Derby. And we were, it was a scratch race. So there was sort of 20 of us or whatever had started. And we were four of us about to lap the rest of the group um so as we came round the track towards them we sort of moved up the track slightly to overtake them um and according to my bike computer we were doing i think 33 miles an hour at the time um, and i was tucked in the guy at the front was massive i was tucked in really close behind him plenty of shelter um and as we came came to pass the, the rest of the riders one of them for some unknown reason turned up the track into our path and and we just hit them and the guy in front of me hit him full on and I was just beginning to turn because we're trained you know if anything happens you go right you go up the track to get out of the way so I was just beginning to turn and my bike clipped both of them and I was catapulted and somersaulted over the top and landed on my back Um, and I vividly remember this horrendous noise which was apparently my lung collapsing and then me trying to get air inside myself um and I just hit the track and stopped and normally with a a steeply banked track when you hit the track you slide and you you sort of damage your skin and it's a bit of a mess whereas I didn't at all I just stopped and landed uh, and took the whole of that impact on my back um and broke lots of bones god that's that's shocking yeah absolutely shocking so Mm -hmm. you went to hospital yes yeah, I got taken to, to Derby initially to A&E, 
which was a real eye-opener because it, it was like a traffic jam. There was just people on beds in the corridor sort of queuing up and they, they could only move one way. Um, so it was a while getting sorted out there. They did various sort of scans and x-rays and, and all the rest of it and then transferred me from there to the trauma unit at Nottingham where I had um, just over two weeks in hospital there with various initially um, epidurals to just block off the pain for pretty much the whole of my chest so that I couldn't feel anything and then eventually got transferred onto very, very heavy painkillers. But yeah, it was it was pretty hard. It must have been really just from from a teacher's point of view when you're sort of pootling along in your daily life, doing your daily thing, and then suddenly this happens, major, major accident. Mm-hmm. And it just throws everything up in the air. Yes. Yeah, you just sort of go into survival mode almost and you're just thinking, right, how do I get through the next chunk of time, which initially is a very short chunk of time. You're not thinking, you know, how do I get through the day? It's literally how do I get through this next couple of minutes? And that just extends and extends and you you just keep going. And I know that it didn't finish there. You know, you went home. Yes. And then ended up back in hospital again. Yes. Yeah. They initially, they, they missed various injuries. So they had this great big list of broken loads and loads of bones. Um, and then when they were doing the discharge letter, they found a load of extra injuries as well. But they still, you know, they decided I'd had my time. I'd been on my epidurals. I was on painkillers that I could go home with, even though it was a massive list of like, you know, sort of shopping list of class A drugs. Um, mm. but they, they discharged me and by then my family were just desperate for me to be home because it hadn't been a particularly pleasant experience being in hospital. Um, so I, I went home, had almost a week at home, but then it became apparent that my lung was pretty much filling up with fluid. Um, so I ended up back in Sheffield and had another sort of eight or nine days. I think it was in Sheffield as well, where they just initially put a chest drain in and then a proper big hose pipe type chest drain um, and eventually you know managed to to drain all the fluid out of the lung um, and then send me back so yeah it was quite a long-winded quite a long-winded thing and then just had this a very long-winded recovery afterwards as well of just gradually sleeping a lot um, and healing very very gradually yeah because it I can't imagine. I mean, you said you broke lots and lots of bones. So it wasn't just a case of your lung sorting out. It, you no. know, so it must have taken a lot of time yes. to heal the various bones as well. Yeah. It was one of those funny things. Well, not funny at all because it was awful. But as a, you know, when you, whenever anybody breaks a bone, you sort of think, right, that's six weeks of healing time. And I remember yeah. being in hospital and thinking, well, you know, I've been here for a week or so and that's, out of my six weeks, uh, it's not going to be that long now. And I just didn't factor in the amount of time it was going to take to, for everything to to pull back together and to heal up. Because yeah, I'd, I'd broken um, how many is it? Nearly twenty ribs, I think, and I'd broken my back in four places, and my pelvis, and my breastbone, and my collarbone, and my shoulder. Um, so it, it was an awful lot of healing, plus the the lung damage and everything else that had happened. Um, so yeah, once I got home, I just slept a lot and at funny times. So I would be, we still laugh about it because, you know, my daughter would be talking to me and I would just fall asleep mid-sentence in front, you know, at the table 
in in the, the dining room, <laughs> you know, mid meal, yeah. I would just conk out and fall asleep. But then I'd be awake at sort of two thirty in the morning. Um, so I did a lot, a lot, a lot of YouTube at like three or four o'clock in the morning. So returning to teaching then must yeah. have been a real challenge. Yes. Although I didn't actually know, I didn't end up back to, back into teaching because at that point I'd been just before the accident. I'd been doing a period of supply teaching, um, mm-hmm. so I then had basically no income for a number. Oh of, my goodness! Um, and then it 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 did give me an awful lot of time though, um, and that's when I, I was sat sort of sat up in in bed, I think, in hospital with a laptop, searching. You know, what else can I do? Because supply at that point was looking fairly uncertain um and the fact that you know i wasn't going to get paid if i didn't work i thought if this happens again or if anything you know if there's a relapse i really need a proper a permanent income um and that's when i came across the twinkle job which was was initially just as an editor um and i applied for that and and event you know got the job and and really enjoyed it so you're no longer an editor for twinkle so what happened then um another slightly odd situation because I, I really enjoyed the editing. It was great. You, know, yeah. you got quality resources from somebody who really cared about what they were writing. You sort of tweaked it and made it right. Um, if there was any sort of spelling and grammar errors, you checked how you would use it in the classroom and you, you possibly put tiny little tweaks and improvements in there. It then went off to a designer who did a really good job on making it look nice. It then came back to a different editor who would check it and make sure it was exactly how it should be and you'd upload it. And it was a re- having come out of teaching where it was absolutely full on to do something where you could just take your time, do it really well, and at the end of the day, yeah. close the computer and, and walk away. There was there was quite an attraction there, and it took a lot of mm. getting used to that you, you know, you'd finish at half past four or whatever it was. And you wouldn't check your email afterwards and you wouldn't go back and finish things. Um, so I really enjoyed it. Um, but I did, I'm trying to think, did about three months of doing that, really enjoyed it. And I then had a, a pop-up message from somebody in HR who said, oh, we'd like to talk to you. We've got a job you need to do. Um, so I spoke to them and, you know, they were they were looking at developing more resources for senior leaders and for developing that sort of part of the business more um and they wanted me to, to, to at least apply for it interview for it and, and see what i did so i had to do a presentation had to pitch it to a couple of the hr people who liked it so then had a, an interview with the sort of the big boss who again he liked what i was talking about um and that's mm-hmm. what i do now i develop resources i develop relationships with people in leadership um, you know, I'm just there to develop that bit of the business. Um, and it's quite an exciting position. And it's one of those things that there's not really a blueprint for it. So, you know, I can go off and do almost whatever I want, as long as it has the results of of people getting what they need and, and us helping leaders. So, yeah, I really enjoy it. I think that's, that's fantastic, actually. And to have come through everything that you've come through with regards to the accidents and so on, and be doing a job that you clearly really are very passionate about. Now, the mad thing, as I understand it, yeah. is that you're back on a bicycle. Yes. I mean, that's mm-hmm. nuts to me. Yeah. I do not get it at all. So t- w- w- seriously, talk me through first time back. Yeah. Um- First time back, 
on a bike was because I'd had the accident middle of May and it was the beginning of September was the first time I actually got back on a bike. Um, And it just felt right. It's one of those things I've always done and I've raced all over the place and I've trained all over the place. Um, And it's just part of who I am. So it just felt right. And I remember at one point, because at at that point, the left side of my body was quite damaged. That's where I'd broken nearly all the ribs and the collarbone and the pelvis on that side. So that side of my body was not strong at that point. And I Mm. remember dropping down. There's a a fantastic descent down into Hathersidjan, the Peak District, called Surprise View. And I got halfway down there and I thought, oh, I'll have a drink now. I'm getting thirsty. So I got my water bottle out with my right hand because I'm right-handed. And I was coming down at sort of 40 miles an hour down a hill, holding handlebars with my left hand and thought, oh, this is the side that's really injured. It's not quite as strong as it should be yet. And having that sort of minor panic. um, But it it was one of those things that for me, there was no question of whether I was going to go back to it. I was just going to do it again. Mm. Um, My wife was less convinced of that. I'm sure she was. And still is. So, yeah. (laughs) it's one of those things that she you know i've been i've been riding a bike since before i met her and you know we met with that part of me being part of my life anyway so you know she sort of accepts that it's going to happen um she's less happy of particularly traffic um and being back on the velodrome as well she's a little bit twitchy with but again that was that was an odd one to go back to because it's slightly different to riding on the road um mm. and obviously everyone knew at, at Derby and at Manchester they'd heard what happened and this sort of horrific story of this guy had smashed most of his body up um so it was almost like a sort of celebrity thing when I turned up um <laughs> but a little bit nerve-wracking as well because you particularly on the track because there's no there's no gears there's no brakes and there's a 45 degree banking so you're skilled you've got no brakes on your bicycle no no, it's a fixed wheel so you basically oh my goodness when you're pedaling why would you do that just it's great fun when you're pedaling you're going forwards and you know you stick to the track because you're moving fast enough um so yeah it's it's great but the skill that's involved in doing that has to be at a reasonably good level so if you don't do it for Mm. a while so i had a a decent amount of time off the track and then had to go back and sort of prove that I was physically and mentally fit to do it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there was there was a little bit of sort of tentativeness about the first time I went on thinking, am I going to be okay? Am I going to have some sort of flashback? Am I going to be all right? Um, but I think it's just one of those things because I've done it for so long and it's so much a part of my life that I just clicked straight back into it and, and didn't really think of it. And I've even got friends who, who I ride quite a lot with on the road who just can't believe that that it's possible to have that sort of level of accident and then go back to the same setup without having some sort of a hangover from it. But it's great. Which proves that you truly are unbreakable, which is why we decided to call this podcast mm-hmm. Tiny Voice Talks Unbreakable. <clears throat> Oliver, you are an inspiration to all of those. You know, it. I really think what you've gone through and your resilience in basically getting back on the bicycle is amazing. But also the fact that, you know, you've you've gone into a, a different role with Twinkle and you're and, and you're creating mm-hmm. a whole new thing. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so 
<laughs> the final question I ask everyone is this, which I've given you a, a, a pre-warning of. If you could be taught by anyone, and they can be living, they can be dead, who would be your perfect teacher? I almost wish you hadn't given me pre-warning of this because it's been oh. in the back of my mind the whole time I've been thinking, who <laughs> would I have? And I think I'm probably going to fudge the answer and you're probably going to hate me for it, but I would really like some of the people that I know through Twitter to be my teacher. Oh, that's um, really nice. Just having, you know, I could name people, but I'd miss people out, but they will know some of the people I've connected with. Mm. You know, having him or her as my teacher, I think would be absolutely brilliant. So if I'm allowed to have that answer, that would, that's who I would want to have. Do you know what? I know that the Twitter community that you and I are very much part of mm-hmm. would really appreciate that because there are so many phenomenal teachers on yes, there that amazing. are changing lives one you know one minute one day at a time they really really are and i think that i i love the collaboration on there yeah. and the fact that everyone is so willing to support and help each other and genuinely genuinely care about the children in their care yes yeah i think it would just be amazing to have some of those people as as my teacher be just fantastic absolutely so what is your twitter handle in case anyone wants to connect with you on twitter it's at oliver slt perfect oliver you have been an absolute delight to talk to and i shall let you go and undoubtedly you'll jump on your bicycle now <laughs> yes in the cellar on the turbo phone absolutely thank you so much for giving me your time that's okay thank you very much doria